Welcome to Book Fair. We help thoughtful women find wholesome, life-affirming books for themselves and their families. Are you tired of picking up the latest new release and finding it full of junk you don't want in your life? You are in the right place. This show shares curated content and we do it together within a fun, book-loving community. So pull up a chair at the table and join the feast. Well, welcome, Book Fair family. We are super excited today because we have a very special guest. My dear friend, Heather Wells, is visiting from Indiana. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) One thing we are not super excited about is that our beloved Amanda is ill today. And so she could not be here, which is really sad. Um, She dearly loves one of the books we're going to talk about today. Um, But we cannot change the date since Heather is in town to do it. So we are recording in person on my back porch and we're so excited. I am so excited. So I am a homeschool mom of two kids and I'm pretty sure homeschooling is just my cover for my own continuing education. Amen. Right. (laughs) So um, years ago, I wanted to read Dandelion Wine with a group of students. So I thought, well, that's not a long enough book for a whole semester. We'll pair Fahrenheit 451 with it because I've never read that. They're by the same author. There you go. The two books are connected. We'll do that. And it was a wonderful experience, so much so that I have repeated it now. So last semester, I was able to do these two books again with a different group of students. And it was wonderful to share these books with them and have them tell me why these were important books. So how old are your kids and what age kids were you teaching this to? So I have a deacon is 17 and Phoebe is 14. Okay. And the students that I've taught have been uh, in high school. They kind of range depending on their reading level. Yeah. So they, and they, what I love about these books are they're just so great that even if I have a student that the mom will say, oh, I don't know, they're not really a strong reader, reading's not their thing. Like, that's fine. Let's just try it. Pulls them in. Yes. That's and good. so the only rule in my class is you have to have read the book to participate in the discussion. And the discussions are so great, everybody reads the book. So I never have a student come who, oh, I, I didn't read it. I just didn't like it. Well, I had one. One student. <laughs> and after he had to sit silently and several times, the students heard me say, oh, I'm so sorry. I bet you've got a great comment, but sadly, it won't be relevant. <laughs> yeah. You cannot you speak today. Yes. <laughs> and after that, it was not an issue. <laughs> I love that. What a good way to, I'm following that away. Yeah. <laughs> so what I loved about choosing Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451 was it's the same author the same mind and two radically different books so i have a little story about this so when we first started i knew you had taught a ray bradbury class so i thought perfect when you're in town we could do a ray bradbury episode this will be so great we all three of us love fahrenheit 451 Mm -hmm. of course it's so much about literacy and what books mean to a society and all of that so i knew we could have a rich discussion around that and then when you said you'd also taught Dandelion Wine, I'm like, well, I want to read that. I'm going to read it. I'm going to, I got the audiobook. I'm going to do it before you come. 
Well, all I'd ever heard is that Ray Bradbury is, you know, one of the most notable science fiction authors of our time. Like, that is what he is known for. Mm -hmm. I knew Fahrenheit 451. I knew The Martian Chronicles. Other things I knew about, it was all sci-fi. So I start reading Dandelion Wine, assuming it's science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And it just starts out in this lovely town in Illinois, like Americana. And there's this scene in... Like, they got through the first chapter, and I was like, well, this could just be set up. You know, sometimes the first chapter, it's like, here's the setup in this cute small town, and then the terrible thing happens, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's this scene in the second chapter where the protagonist, it's a coming-of-age story. Yes. The the young boy is, like, in the fields with his brother and his father, and he gets this feeling that this summer is going to be different something is coming and there's this a little bit of this buildup of like he can just feel it he can just feel it around the corner and his brother speaks and it kind of runs away and then he feels it coming back and I'm like what is it is it a monster is it you know a time warp what is coming you know what is coming to this Illinois town and then it's a realization that he is alive And you're like, wait, what? What? (laughs) That's what What? you smelled in the cornfield? (laughs) What is this book? And then I start Googling. I'm like, oh, it's not (laughs) sci-fi. I love entering a book really blind like that. It is a true adventure. (laughs) So it completely took me by surprise. And then once I got into the rhythm of it, I was just almost shocked. Because I was like, Ray Bradbury does... What do you, down home Americana, yeah. like small town, almost like a kind of a grown up little house on the prairie, mm. America in the 50s. Like, yeah. I couldn't believe it. So, that book is semi autobiographical right. for him. So, it he just changes some places, some names, some details, but it for him, he said he would just start out by writing down a word, whatever word came to his mind. He would write it down that morning, and then he would see where that word would take him and flush it out. And then he that would lead him to different memories, and then he would write that down. So it was almost like this was just me recounting my memories hmm. through this process of just a word starting Yeah, and it does feel, it's a little bit episodic, like Mm -hmm. it feels like the chapters, and I think some of them were put out as short stories as well. Okay, Okay. so there used to be a show, if you remember this, called Ray Bradbury Theater. No, I don't remember. Uh, So when would this have been, if I know it and you don't? The 80s, maybe? (laughs) Maybe it was the 80s. There was a Ray Bradbury Theater. So... Anytime I have to watch anything cringy, I force my students to do it too. So we can all experience together. Yeah. So these this is 80s television show, right? There's lots of shoulder pads, <laughs> lots of mustaches, Amazing. right? So there are a couple of the chapters from Data Line Wine that were made into Ray Bradbury episodes. Oh. And so they're just hilarious to watch. Um, one is a really intense scary chapter of the book that almost seems out of place as you're reading it it's really scary yeah and each time i've read that aloud to the kids i mean you've got a room full of teens right not not exactly the stillest yes of children right i look up in the middle of reading it every time and they're leaning in like oh, can't wait got them. they're so engaged it's so well written then there's another episode um one of the things he explores in dana line wine is the idea of 
what is true happiness? Mm-hmm. And so there's a man in the book who's going to build a happiness machine. And so one of the episodes is about the happiness machine and can you build a happiness machine? Mm. And is it okay to bring things far away, close to home? Is it okay to make things that are meant to be short last for a long time? Do you lose something and the pleasure of those fleeting things by drawing them out? Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then the last one is a really funny chapter on this woman who's just a klutz and she wants to be head of a woman's society in town. And the woman who is head of it convinces her that she's put a hex on her. (laughs) So (laughs) she's going to try to undo the hex. It's very funny. So yes, several of them were made into Ray Bradbury theater. You can, you can find it on YouTube. It's all on YouTube. (laughs) I've got to check it out. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I just, I absolutely loved it. And I mean, Elizabeth, I'm thinking we should put it in as a choice in the fall as one of our book fair book club reads, because I think our audience would just love it. It's so up our alley. Um, Just, it's just about home and family and growing up and nostalgia and so many great themes. There's a, they talk about it being a quote time machine. This man is a quote time machine. And it turns out that what that means is he, um, he's really old and he lived through the civil war. And so when these boys go to visit him, that he tells them stories Mm -hmm. about the civil war and they're like, he's like a real life time machine. He takes us back. Like there's just so much good stuff. That's amazing. There is. And what I love, especially when you're teaching this to high schoolers who are trying to figure out what does it take to be happy? Mm -hmm. When do I feel happy? So to read this book with them and then ask them, does Leo Offman's happiness machine work? What What do you think? If you were building one, would you, one, would you build one? Two, what would you put in it? What do you think the result of that would be? Um, this idea of why in a book that's about a coming of age and learning that you're alive, why is there so much death in it? There's a good bet several prominent people die in the book. Um, and then the chapter that, listen, this has driven teen boys to tears upon more than one occasion. There's a chapter where the main character, Douglas, his best friend moves away. Mm -hmm. And it is just heart-wrenching the way that Bradbury writes it. It just kills you. So to ask the kids, why in a book about life, finding out you're alive, would there be so much death? And then the kids can tell me. Well, because you can't have a true appreciation for life without an acknowledgement of death. And so in the book, he sets up, you have this very idyllic town, but you also have a ravine that is at the outer edge of the town. So throughout the book, there's this uh, juxtaposition of civilization versus chaos, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. The orderliness of town versus the ravine that's jungle-like and dark and deep. Why do you have to have a ravine, right? Right. What in your life looks like town versus the ravine? And then they get to tell me, and I just have to sit there and, and soak it all up. And listen while they externally process what is growing them. Yes. And in a time, I guess y'all know, this year a huge study came out about girls being, teenage girls being dramatically less happy than ever known 
And I'm just hearing that what you're doing with the small group of students and thinking, that's magical. Yeah. To let to point to let them go on their own journey to learn what is going to make them happy in a time when people are not realizing mm-hmm. what makes happiness. Yeah. It, it's such a beautiful book. So I read it when I was in high school. And then reading it again as an adult. So it's, different. Yes, because I've had all this experience. So there's one chapter where these younger children, probably 10-ish, are visiting with an old woman. And she tells them she was young once. And they know. Yeah, they don't believe her. Yeah, you weren't. <laughs> You've always, always been, been old. old. Like when you see your teacher at the mall, you're like, no, no. you live at school. <laughs> So I love as an as an adult reading that and remembering like kids they can't get what they can't get right but one yeah. day they'll remember that they read this book and some of these things that they can't get now will click later so can we read my favorite part yes so in the book um, it is an extended family I, I love the setup of this book. It's not really about one person, even though it is about Douglas's coming of age. It's his whole family. And so sometimes he's the main character of the book, of the chapter. Sometimes it's his grandpa. Sometimes he's just the blonde boy that runs by on the street. So this chapter is about uh, his great grandma, who they call double grandma, which I adore. And um, this is how he describes her. She was a woman with a broom or a dustpan or a wash rag or a mixing spoon in her hand. You saw her cutting pie crust in the morning, humming to it, or you saw her setting out the baked pies at noon or taking them in cool at dusk. She rang porcelain cups like a Swiss bell ringer to their place. She glided through the halls as steadily as a vacuum machine, seeking, finding, and setting to rights. She made mirrors of every window to catch the sun. She strolled but twice through any garden, trowel in hand, and the flowers raised their quivering fires upon the warm air in her wake. She slept quietly and turned no more than three times in a night, as relaxed as a white glove to which at dawn a brisk hand will return. Waking, she touched people like pictures to set their frames straight. Oh my word. Right? So then to ask the kids, what does it look like to have someone walk through the room and set you astray like they would a picture? Mm. And to hear them describe like what Bray, Ray Bradbury does there, to have them describe, well, maybe it would be a little touch or a pat on the back. Like, oh, yes, what yes. What gentle, close accountability looks like. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. I love that. Do you want me to tell more what happens in this? So in this chapter, she has decided that it's time for her to die, that she has been wound up and the clock has run out and she's okay with that. She's done what she came to do. So she calls in the family and she's giving them her her final words. So um, Tom, who is the main character, Douglas, his little brother, She calls him in and she says, Tom, in the Southern Seas, there's a day in each man's life when he knows it's time to shake hands with all his friends and say goodbye and sail away. And he does. And it's natural. It's just his time. That's how it is today. 
I'm so like you sometimes, sitting through Saturday matinees until nine at night when we send your dad to bring you home. Tom, when the time comes that the same cowboys are shooting the same Indians on the same mountaintop, then it's best to fold back the seat and head for the door with no regrets and no walking backward up the aisle. So I'm leaving while I'm still happy and still entertained. Wow. Yes. So good. So then she snuggles down in bed and she says, that's better. Alone, she snuggled luxuriously down through the warm snowbank of linen and wool, sheet and cover, and the colors of the patchwork quilt were bright as the circus banners of old time. Lying there, she felt as small and secret as on those mornings 80-some-odd years ago, when wakening, she comforted her tender bones in bed. A long time back, she thought, I dreamed a dream and was enjoying it so much when someone wakened me. And that was the day when I was born. And now, now let me see. She cast her mind back. Where was I, she thought, 90 years. How to take up the thread and the pattern of that lost dream again. She put out a small hand. There, yes, that was it. She smiled. Deeper in the warm snow hill, she turned her head upon her pillow. That was better. Now, yes, now she saw it shaping in her mind quietly and with a serenity like a sea moving along an endless and self-refreshing shore. Now she let the old dream touch and lift her from the snow and drift her above the scarce-remembered bed. Downstairs, she thought, they're polishing the silver, rummaging the cellar and dusting in the halls. She could hear them living all through the house. It's all right, whispered great-grandma as the dream floated her. Like everything else in this life, it's fitting. And the sea moved her back down the shore. Audible. Please have Heather read this book. I am literally going to stop the book I'm reading and and read this today. This is amazing. It's beautiful. Beautiful. His just... His style of writing in this book is so gorgeous that the bed is this, the snowy linens, right? I just love that. Yeah. And the kids loved this. So he chooses a couple of motifs through this book. Uh, Magic is one of the machines. So like the happiness machine that we talked about. Um, And he uses different motifs like green. The color green pops up all the time. Of course, not with great grandma because she's at the end of her life. So white is popping up with her. But when I told the kids, you know, green represents spring and life. It was so fun to hear them read the book and go, Mrs. Wells, did you see the trolley seats were green? (laughs) (laughs) I did notice that. Good job. (laughs) So they loved discovering that for themselves and now we're reading other books together and they're looking for you know how else is the author tying this book together other than the plot so you've made symbolism not something that is just a boring literary thing to pass a test but something that fueled their curiosity and their passion yeah and they love it yeah 
the whole, the happiness machine is one of my favorite chapters because it's, it just really condenses this idea of what is it to truly be happy. Mm-hmm. But he uses machines all throughout and will even reference people in that way of acting with their cogs and or one of the women who passes she knows she's going to die because she's a grandfather clock in the hallway and she can tell you within an hour when that thing is going to wind down and need to be wound back up and so she knows her her cogs are starting to miss she's winding down and it's fitting and it's so interesting to think about that this book i mean he wrote it it was published in the 50s, but took place in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, that was really the time when machines were first becoming ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. When people were first having cars and machines were coming into the home and you know, they were transitioning from ice boxes to refrigerators. Yes. Like all of that kind of stuff. So those meditations on what are machines doing? What can we learn from them? And are they always good? Right. Yeah, and when you want to take the reader somewhere quickly, and there's this new concept in the world of machines, we can just say, well, a machine does it. And then you don't have to think about all the things, and you can get to the illustration of what happens then. That's so interesting. Yeah. He's he's just masterful. Um, just masterful. And so we read Dandelion Wine first, the way I have the classes set up, and then we move into Fahrenheit 451. So one of the things I love to tell them about Fahrenheit is when Ray Bradbury was writing this, he, they had a little home and he had, I think, two daughters at home who are very active and he can't write, find any piece to write there. So he's roaming the UCLA campus. He finds a building and the basement of the building are 12 typewriters and you can rent a typewriter for 10 cents per half hour. <laughs> So he says he gets a bag of dimes, he goes down into the basement, and $9.80 later, he has written Fahrenheit 451. In one sitting? <laughs> well, I guess over time, but that was how oh, much wow. it took mm-hmm. every every dime. So That's yes. not that much time to write a whole book, that, no. especially one that is often placed in like the top 20, top 50 books ever written in the yeah. English language. And so he said that he would just have the characters come to him and tell him their story. So he would say, you know, um, Clarice, come and tell me about what your life is like. Beatty, come to me. And he said, they would just tell me and I would just type it out. And he, he did say that Clarice is him, that he identified with her hmm. in the book, hmm. which I thought was interesting. But so... Even though you have this very, uh, two really disparate books, isn't Guy Montag in Fahrenheit kind of coming to age himself? Yeah. Even though he's a grown man? Yeah. Emotionally, he's very adolescent. And realizing nothing has brought happiness. He didn't know anybody that had it. What was it? What, yeah. How do you get it? Yeah. Right. And so you even get to continue that mm-hmm. theme of what is true happiness for for Mildred? Is it really is she really happy just sitting with these walls talking to her all day long? Clearly not. She attempts suicide at one point in the book. So mm-hmm. that's not making her happy. Um, just fascinating. I love that even though you might read the books and go, wow, those are really different. 
it's part of a greater conversation, yes. right? That keeps going. For sure. So Bradbury was born in 1920 and died in 2012. Yeah. Oh, racist. Yeah. So he lived Ish. a really, yeah, he <laughs> lived a really long life and was just so prolific. Mm-hmm. He wrote so many books and short stories, and he even wrote some screenplays and things in Hollywood out there in California. And he is just known as one of, well, first of all, there are people that rank him the best science fiction writer, the most influential science science fiction writer, um, or some will say the most influential of the 20th century. You know, he stood on the shoulders. He even said that he stood on the shoulders of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. But kind of after that, I mean, he was the major science fiction writer of the 20th century. So he's this huge literary force, especially in the science fiction genre. Mm -hmm. Although I thought it was really interesting um, doing a little bit of research about him that he actually did not consider himself to be a science fiction writer. He said that Fahrenheit 451 was his only science fiction book. He considered anything that took place in outer space or on another planet to be fantasy. Ah. So I just thought it was really interesting Mm. that someone who was known for being the most famous science fiction author of the 20th century didn't even consider himself to be a science fiction writer. <laughs> that is funny. So would it fall into, what was the category K.B. Hole talked about? Science fantasy? Science fantasy. Would that be what he considered? or Probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but he the way he did it in his mind, the dis- delineation we've talked about on our show before is that science fiction, it's based in science or imagining of the future. For him, in order for it to be true science fiction, it had to be completely realistic scientifically. Ah. So to him, if it wasn't realistic, it was fantasy. Hmm. Whereas if you take something like, for example, Out of Silent Planet, where they travel to Mars in a spaceship in the future, we would consider that to be science fiction because it's not magic. It's not, well, out of Silent Planet in some ways because of the angels and whatever you could say, which is why that one crosses a little bit. But in general, someone gets in a spaceship and travels to another planet, and that is imagined. We consider that to be science fiction. But to Bradbury, unless it was 100% realistic, he considered it in his mind to be fantasy. Very interesting. interesting. Yeah. So since you brought up Out of the Silent Planet, I will tell you this real quick. Um, when I committed to reading that with the book fair community, I thought I was committing to one book. And then I realized it was a trilogy. And then I realized it was C.S. Lewis trilogy. I'm like, I've now committed to nine books because I'm yes, going to have to reread have to this. <laughs> and when you had the author of Deeper Heaven on, now her name escapes me. Yeah, but Christina Hale. Yes. When you had her on, I was like, I've never heard of medieval cosmology. So I started doing research. I'm like, I don't have time to do all this research <laughs> because I'm teaching these other things. So I went to some of the ladies at our co-op and said, hey, would anybody be interested in me teaching a course on C.S. Lewis next Look year? Look at you. And they said, sure. I was like, boom. Fueling your all own my- education. It's <laughs> like all my time is now justified and I can read it. So next year, 
We're going to be knocking out C.S. Lewis. I'm telling you, this is all based on what am I interested in? And I just assume the children will be as well. (laughs) Probably a good assumption. You seem like you got some good interests. (laughs) Oh, this semester we read The Crucible Animal Farm. I'm reading that right now. Oh, are you? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. They like love to hate it. Yes. They loved it. We just finished Animal Farm. And now we're reading How Green Was My Valley. And there's no tie-in between those books other than these are books Heather loves and wants to share with you. So I I knew they'd buy in the first two books. How Green Was My Valley, I told them, I'm bequeathing this book to you. You don't have to love it as much as I do, but you have to be gentle with me. Yes. <laughs> so, but all of them have these things that you can still ask the kids and they're engaged. I think even with books that might not immediately capture their attention, if you're just asking questions, they will come back with these amazing insights. So with Fahrenheit 451, one of the questions we would ask is, um, what technology did you see then that you can tie to now? Right. Airbuds. Right. Seashells. That was one. Can you think of any well, of the other? Big screen TVs. Big screen TVs. And influencers that you think are your personal friends and you don't know yes. them. And you're like, it's sweet to pray for their daughter. But I mean, like, you don't know them. That's not your cousin. You've yes. never met them. And that Mildred calls the people on the TVs her family. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Then you get to have a great discussion of what is family. What is family, right? actually. You have that need in you. You can either fill it this way or you can fill it like Mildred did. How that work for her? Um, reality TV. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Was another one. Which at the time, I mean, this did not exist. No. Nothing resembling reality TV existed at the time. When was this written? It was written in 1953. Okay. So yeah, I mean, all these things, things like earbuds, I mean, they were not even imagined yet. Yeah. Amazing. So one of the comments my son made when we were reading this, um, in Fahrenheit 451, there's the mechanical hound. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? Like it's machine, but they refer to it as a hound. And Guy Montag is frightened of it, right? Scared to death of the mechanical hound. And so Deacon made the comment that he thought it was ironic that Guy was scared of the mechanical hound when in fact he was also a mechanical hound, Mm -hmm. part alive and sentient, part machine Mm. with his helmet and his gear uh the hound was sent out to kill guy was sent out to kill wow what a connection i know i know i had like a a mom slash teacher (laughs) moment (laughs) yes okay so for our listeners that have not read this book heather give us a quick premise of fahrenheit 451 Okay, so Fahrenheit 451 is set in a time where firemen have the job, instead of putting out fires, they set fire to books. And they've come to this point in society because, well, can I read a section? Of course. Okay, excellent. So uh, Guy Montag is a fireman and his captain, Captain Beatty, comes to talk to Guy. And they're discussing how they came to this point in time. So... 
Beatty says it didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with. No. Technology, mass exploitation, and minority pressure carried the trick. Thank God. Today, thanks to them, you can stay happy all the time. You're allowed to read comics, the good old confessions, or trade journals. Yes, but what about the firemen then? asked Montag. Ah. Beatty leaned forward in the faint mist of smoke from his pipe. What more easily explained and natural? With school turning out more runners, jumpers, racers, <laughs> tinkerers, grabbers, snatchers, flyers, and swimmers, instead of examiners, critics, knowers, and imaginative creators, the word intellectual, of course, became the swear word it deserved to be. You always dread the unfamiliar. Surely you remember the boy in your own school class who was exceptionally bright, did most of the reciting and answering while the others sat like so many leaden idols hating him? And wasn't it this bright boy you selected for beatings and tortures after hours? Of course it was. We must all be alike. Not everyone born free and equal, as the Constitution says, but everyone made equal. Each man the image of every other. Then all are happy, for there are no mountains to make them cower, to judge themselves against. So, a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Take the shot from the weapon. Breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man? Me? I won't stomach them for a minute. And so when houses were finally fireproofed completely all over, there was no longer need of firemen for the old purposes. They were given the new job as custodians of our peace of mind, the focus of our understandable and rightful dread of being inferior. Official censors, judges, and executors. That's you, Montag, and that's me. Amazing. That When I read that part, it made me think of this thing my dad used to say all the time. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the truth, which is what he would say to us when we were being pigheaded. <laughs> and the idea that you can be really comfortable in your ignorance and maybe you just want to just be comfortable, but but you're ignorant. Yeah. It's the thing you can't forget. And in this culture today, you read this with your kids, right? This is now. Yes. And then you hear a news story and you say, huh, what does that look like, right? So instead of getting into discussions with your kids about this is right and this is wrong, ask them. Read them a story. Read them a story. How does that work? What does it look like to make everyone equal? Hmm. What does it look like to level all mountains so there are no challenges? What would your life look like? What are your mountains? Mm-hmm. And then you sit and let them tell you. Which they can understand things like that in, in a lot of different ages. Nate's not going to read this book at eight years old. But we could, we could read stories that reflected that in other ways that are on an eight-year-old's level. I, I love so much the idea of letting story take them there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this one is amazing. So through in that section, uh, Beatty kind of highlights this idea of technology, right? And we've talked about the, the big TV walls, the technology. There's another part where they talk about getting on the trains that go so fast, you can't read the billboards anymore, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the seashells, so they're listening. They're now disconnected from other people. So, I mean, how many of us moms in the audience have had arguments with our kids about their devices? 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just right? laugh because I'm like every mom. Every every, every single mom. mom. Yeah. <laughs> And the so, bane of my existence. Yes. Why am I so excited that my youngest just turned 18? I can stop arguing about devices. <laughs> You're like, just, you well, are not your brain. That's fine. I've done your my choice. job. <laughs> but then you have a book like this where you can say, how healthy was technology in this book? How do you see that it was used well? How do you see where it was abused? What does that look like today? Right? And then they answer the questions for you because the book makes it so clear that excessive technology, dumbing down of shows, right? He says, oh, you can read. Yeah, what can they read? The comic books, Mm -hmm. right? So dumb down your mind. An overdose, right? Yes, that's, that's what we have right now. <laughs> what, what does Amanda call it? The twaddle, like, yeah, right? Yeah. You fill just with twaddle. You're not getting any of these big ideas. You can never join into the great conversation, which I think is why Fahrenheit 451 stands the test of time. Yes. Because it's part of that great conversation. It's talking to the other books. Well, and I just, when I was just thinking about our kids. One thing I have really tried to help my kids see and I think I think they've gotten like I think they've gotten it to some degree but I think one thing the kids raised in this society where everybody has a phone everybody's on social media I mean quote everybody um texting all the time you know all of that kind of stuff is that they don't see that these technologies are made to be addictive so that you will serve someone else's purpose Mm-hmm. so that you will make money for someone else. When you stay on Facebook for hours, you are making money for Facebook. So they make Facebook as addictive as possible so that you will stay on it for hours. And it's so easy with teens for that to just be like an eye roll mom, you know, because to them, it's just the world. Right. This is just the way it is. And so I think a book like this is so important so that they can see an even bigger, badder, more invasive version of what we're dealing with. And they can see, oh, they're not doing this for my good. It might feel good, but the video game companies do not have my best interest at heart. Right. Yes. The YouTube does not have my best interest at heart. Right. And so what choices am I going to make to defend my own life, my own mind, my own happiness, my own well-being in the world. Yes. And I think the way to bring that up to each other and to kids both is is by pointing out a medium that they do enjoy. And so with one of my teenagers, I talked about, or well, I have one teenager. I was trying to be coy, but I have one teenager. <laughs> He's 20 now, so this, was, this is an old story for him. But there was this moment in the... I'm trying to think of which of the Avengers where Loki lands and he is going to free Earth from this burden of freedom Mm -hmm. and free will. And everybody is angered when they see that because they don't want that. But he talks about how you've been willingly giving it up for years anyway. I'm going to cut to the chase for you. This is paraphrased. But he's just saying, I'm just going to go ahead and relieve you of it. You never wanted freedom anyway. You give it away at every chance you have. And we kind of stopped and talked about like... 
what does that mean? How do you give it away? And I, I wish I'd read this book at that time because I would say, here's actually a book about it. Here's another story about it. And I think that's a way to invite in if somebody who's maybe not going to read this book to say, well, this is a whole story about what this looks like right here. Yes, so true. And the other point I love to bring up with the kids when we're reading uh, Fahrenheit 451 is cancel culture, mm-hmm. right? He says in, in what we just quoted, and really in what you were referencing, we don't want diversity of thought, right? right? We're not really looking for that. And so how do you squelch those voices? Well, Beatty suggests just let them keep doing what they're doing. They'll squelch them on their themselves. own. They police right? themselves. Yes. You police yourself. And so we don't really have a lot to do. And so what does it look like to have diversity of thought? What are What's the upside of that? What are the challenges of that? How do you have a conversation where you're not in agreement in a productive way? Right? And I, all of those conversations can come out of reading Fahrenheit 451, which is why we might call it cancel culture, but previously it was political correctness, right? Right. Every generation has something like that. It's not new. It's not new. And so I think, again, that's why this book endures, because it's getting to what is family? What is freedom? Right? What what really is in man? Man wants to, in his heart, be productive. We were put here to work. And so if you, this book would question that and say, no, 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 you were, you're just be entertained. That's, yeah, that's what their wouldn't society you be happier? wants. Wouldn't you just yeah. be happier if you could just sit all day in your living room and watch, have family around you on the big screens that just They're never going to say anything real to you. So you won't have to fight about right? it. Right. You never mm-hmm. have to fight. You can just laugh. You can just laugh and be entertained and you can just take a pill at night that puts you to sleep so you always sleep well and wouldn't you just be happier and you know we get these pesky books out of the way if you happen to find any call the firemen they'll come burn them for you because they'll just disturb your peace Mm -hmm. so just wouldn't you just be happier and it's so interesting I think even as adults we can get caught in the idea of as we're working you know so much of our life is work it's the mm-hmm. curse, right? We have to work. And I think we can get into, well, we're looking forward to retirement. Won't it be great when we can be retired right. and we can, whatever, retire to Florida at the beach and just mm-hmm. hang out and just play golf or travel. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with in your later years relaxing. I, that is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we can start to think unconsciously, well, my life is never going to be as good as it can be while I'm having to work all the time. It's really going to only be better. It's really only going to be happy when I can retire. But a book like this challenges that. Yes. And really, so does Dataline Wine. Because yes. it's also talking about what is true yeah. happiness. Yeah. So one of the other questions I love to hear the kids' discussion on is, um, if you had power over people, why would their literacy threaten your power? Hmm. That is That is wonderful. Right? That's a, that's a week's conversation, well, truly. Especially kids who are getting ready to vote. Yes. Why, why should you know things? Why should you research it out for yourself? And if people are trying to make that difficult for you to get that information, it. 
It's okay. It's good. Before you put it into your body, before you bring it in your home, before you get your family and put it inside of it and go down the road, ask questions and look. And if they don't encourage that, those in power. Then you need to question them. Yes. And so to hear the kids talk about that was phenomenal. Their responses to, well, then we might know, we might question like, yes, you might question do that, right? So we talk a lot about the nobility of questioning. It only becomes ignoble if you don't seek an answer. Well, and the flip side to that too, that I bet they came right to is that when we are questioned, we're not offended. We're happy to to say, here's why I came to this. Yes. Please question me. Let us seek truth together. Yes. Yes, let's learn alongside each other, mm-hmm. especially for things that I've not examined before, right? Mm-hmm. People I don't know, like, let me walk alongside you with this. So I think that's yet another reason Fahrenheit 451 is going to stick around for a long, long time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, as a hairdresser, love the part <laughs> Mildred characterizes shallowness and me- mediocrity. And so it's, she talks about... um. He describes her as abnormally white flesh, chemically burnt hair. And it's a society that wants everybody to look exactly the same because this is what beauty is. Beauty is cardboard cutout. It's paper dolls. It's not real. It's not a scar or a different shape of body or, and it's something that I early in my career realized I don't. I don't want to make everybody look the same. And when I have someone sit in my chair that does want that, I realized there was a place where I had to have the conversation of, I might not be your hairdresser and that's okay. That's not what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm here to find you. Yes. And you're not the same as her. No. And it makes me think about um, everything sad is Uh untrue where you have the Persian rug and the flaws that are woven into it. Right. And to help teens and to have that lesson reinforced to me as an adult that you have to have the ravine with the city you have to have the mess of people not agreeing in Fahrenheit 451 that is what life is about that helps you grow and be who you were meant to be with your unique talents that lesson never gets old no no it doesn't and in a a time, and maybe all times or this time, where people say, why would a just God do this? You know, then you can kind of bring it into that conversation, too, of like, if we had perfectness all the time, we would not be here. We would be in heaven. But also, what would any of it mean here? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect is way overrated. And who even defines it? Who right. gets to define who defines that? It? Yeah. Right? People yeah. selling you things. Yes. <laughs> so... At the end of Fahrenheit 451, um, because I watched the 1960s Fahrenheit 451 movie, I had my children watch it as well. (laughs) So I fed them tacos, which is my favorite food of all time. And we watched it together. What a great night. Cringy on so many, so, so many levels. (laughs) It's very cringy. Um, And I love to hear them talk about how the book was different than the movie and how they didn't like some things that were done in the movie so for instance in the movie the same woman plays mildred and clarice 
Oh, interesting. Yes, which was kind of an interesting because in the book, we did have a discussion about these two women in his life. Mm-hmm. What do they each do? And he talks at one point about Clarice being a mirror and how that was so odd to him to have someone mirror him. And he wasn't comfortable with that. I was like, wow, what a great discussion, right? Who are those people in your life Mm. that provide a mirror? Those are good people, just like Clarice was a good person. So anyway, um, they loved certain parts of the movie. But at the end, where you have all the people, I'm assuming since this book came out in the 50s, we can spoil the end (laughs) for people. Let's do it. If you haven't read it at this stop point. Stop it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stop the audio and come back after you've read it. But at the end where they're all milling around quoting the books that they have now taken as their identity was interesting to me that they actually didn't call themselves like this is Montag. He's reading Ecclesiastes. He became mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes. Which was like, I don't know how I feel about mm-hmm. his identity being removed like that. Have we really gone to a good place or are we just at a better place? <laughs> or a different bad place, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting, but it was a great discussion with the kids. Like, given what you've read now, and you can't say the Bible because it's a very pious answer, <laughs> which book would you choose? Why, why did Bradbury choose... Ecclesiastes for Montag, right? So in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all a book about wisdom, about life under the sun. The race isn't always to the swift, right? Very interesting. It really shows kind of where Montag has come to. So just to explain that a little bit at the end of the book, which I don't really think is a spoiler, but by the end of the book, the protagonist gets in with a group of people because all the books are being burned, eliminated, that are trying to preserve literature by them each memorizing a section of a book. And if it's a longer book, like, I forget what example they gave, but for some of the longer ones, they would divide it up. Like, I'm the first third of The Count of Monte Cristo. Right. You know, whatever. Um, And so they were trying to preserve these great works by memorizing them because they knew at any point, if they were found, they would be destroyed. Yeah. So it was fun to ask the kids, like, what book and why? What, What did you find important about that book that was worth preserving? So we kind of moved beyond like, oh, I do this book because I really liked it. But what would that benefit someone if they read it? So you got to dig a little deeper. So that was a super fun discussion. And I never, my answer changes every time they ask because either I've read something new or I've had a new insight. So it, it changes all the time. But it's fun to think of books that way. Yeah. What is this giving the world? What is the value? If I had to memorize this book, what would I hope people would get from its recitation? Do you have one? You know, my mind was just flipping. And what's so funny is, I know we just read and talked about it, but there's part of me that's like, I think I could memorize everything sad is untrue. Because it just has so much goodness in it that I wouldn't want that book to be lost. Mm-hmm. Well, Jane Amanda Austin, might Jane beat you to that because of the the poop trail right. and that she might, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she enjoyed that a good bit. <laughs> you might have to pick another. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back to Austin. Yeah. My second yeah. choice. <laughs> what about you, Elizabeth? Do you I'm have sitting one? here thinking. Um, 
I wonder if it would be Hannah Coulter because of the peace and grief and the the continue and you gather all of these moments in your life. And I feel like we're pulling such a similar theme if we're gathering this life's full, 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 full of memories and moments that are good and bad and hard and soft and and they all make up your life. Yeah. And you have to hold them together and you have to wait till the end to see to look back on them. But I'm not sure that's, I think that's my right now answer. I'm not sure that I would really say that every day, but that's what I'm thinking now. I have, I've used this one before, so maybe it's a good pick for me, is Atlas Shrugged. Hmm. Um, That would be Charlie's. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it tends to be a book that also is very predictive in nature, like Fahrenheit 451 with the technology, um, which makes me think. It, it has these themes that are every generation is going to, mm-hmm. oh, yes, we see that. Um, and that book, after I read it, I felt like I earned a badge. Like there should be, you know how Girl Scouts used to get badges yes, for completing certain I things? I feel like we should have book badges. Like yes. you read Atlas Shrugged. Here, go sew it on your jacket. Or yes. you read... Your great uh, work. So. Yes, the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy. Here's your badge, <laughs> yeah. right? I am for this. <laughs> I wanted one for Moby Dick. Yes. I was like, I read all about the sperm whales. Yeah. Badge for you, for badge. sure. Yeah. Um, Lawrence had me, Lawrence is my husband. He had me read one time Centennial. I can't remember the author now. But James Mishner. Marita has been yes. trying to get me to read that for years. Okay. It starts with the creation of the planet. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's a In big backstory. <laughs> <laughs> it goes through an ice age. I'm like, oh my word. How far in history does this go? And then it's like go the back. 1980s or something. Like, oh, let it end. <laughs> but I learned so much almost against my will. So sometimes something will come up. I'm like, darn it. I know that from that stupid centennial book. <laughs> Somebody asked me a question the other day about a cow. I don't even know how it came up. It was like, well, let me bestow. let me pull out my information from Centennial. <laughs> there are a couple different cows. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you never know when that information might be necessary. So there you go. It's have right it. there in your pocket. It's right there. I'm ready. Should I go into cattle country? So. <laughs> Well, Heather, this has just been so delightful. Thank you so much for taking time out of your trip to stop by and share with us your insights and wisdom from teaching Ray Bradbury. Um, It's been so great to have some insight into him. If you were going to read another book of his, do you have one you want to read next? You know, I've never read The Illustrated Man. Okay. And it's not even super long and sounds super interesting. And it just, it's on my list. Okay. That grows because of you all exponentially and the wonderful (laughs) community. I'm constantly upping my Goodreads, readjusting like, oh, that sounds great. Let's add that. (laughs) Yes, pretty, pretty soon. So, so thank you for you ladies and the wonderful community because my list is long and rich. Yay. Good. Yes. So listeners. We, as usual, will start a post in our group. If you are not yet a part of our private Facebook group, you can go onto Facebook and search Book Fair Podcast and join the group. And as Heather said, we have lots of great, rich discussions about lots of great books, what we're reading, what we should read next. People pop in there and ask questions. My kids needs this or is going through this. What recommendations do you have? And it's so wonderful to see the community jump in and 
help out with all of that. So we will have a discussion post for this episode on Ray Bradbury. What did you learn today? What did you learn about Ray Bradbury? Have you read either one of these books, Fahrenheit 451 or Dandelion Wine? If you have, what did you think? And if you haven't, which one do you want to read and why? I love it. I love it. I just have to say hello to my students who were wowed that I was coming to do a podcast. I love <laughs> this is, it. Wow, you're going to be on a podcast? I'm like, yes, I'm cool. You all are lucky. I deign to come into your presence to teach <laughs> you. You upped your credibility so much more. <laughs> I did. <laughs> love it. Love it. So until next time, I'm Trisha. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Heather. And happy Ray Bradbury reading. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to Book Fair Podcast. Join our private Facebook group. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram or email us at chat at bookfairpodcast.com. And you can help us continue to grow. Share an episode with a friend, mention us on social media, and leave a review in your podcast app. We'll see you next Tuesday.